Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Hello there, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Just got an email from the Braves. They're they're doing promotion ticket packs, and they've got one University of Tennessee game day. It's going to be July 18th. Rumor has it they're going to allow the University of South Carolina to come in and score one more touchdown. <laughs> Phillip's listening right now. I had to make that joke. It's getting old with him. Uh, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be on the program, uh, I'm going to shake things up. And, and there was a topic I wanted to get to in the last hour that I could not get to. And <laughs> I know it's mean, but you, you know, I love you in that heterosexual way. <laughs> I got to play for you some audio because this gets into 2024. Carrie Lake and Blake Masters in in early polling seem to be dominating uh, the space for Republicans in 2024 in the Arizona Senate race. This is, I get it, I realize it's from MSNBC, but listen to this. Who are the potential Republican candidates? You've got Carrie Lake, I am told, is not ruling out a bit here at this point. But also you've got the likes of Blake Masters. That's the name that I'll say that everybody should seriously take a look at. He lost by about five percentage points to Mark Kelly, uh, but he is openly, uh, you know, uh, mold another bit here. And he essentially has had everything from his past thrown at him already here. Uh, he's got financial backing behind him and he could mount a serious challenge again, especially in a three way race. But the other name is Karen Taylor Robeson, who is much more of a, a Doug Ducey ally. Uh, her former advisors were old McCain advisors. And for her, this would be after losing to Carrie Lake in her governor's race in 2022. This could be a chance for her to make the case of Republicans. It didn't work out for you in 2022. Give this style of Republicanism a shot in 2024. And if you are the Democrats, of course, your biggest concern here is a three way race and voters, uh, you know, a Republican base coming out and turning out for a Republican and flipping the seat in uh, the GOP's favor. I have had enough of Carrie Lake's shtick in Arizona. We now have the data from Arizona. The Republican advantage in Arizona was nine points. 75% of registered Republicans voted, 69% of registered Democrats voted. Republicans across the state of Arizona won. They kept the state legislature. They won. It is Carrie Lake who told McCain voters not to vote for her on election day. They did as they were told. She underperformed every other Republican except Blake Masters in Maricopa County. Carrie Lake could have run a really good campaign, but she chose to make it all about the stolen election, and now she wants to be the fangirl poster girl for the Trump right. She would have been a good governor. And her arrogance and her beclowning herself in that race should doom her nomination in the future for anything else. She decided to go full-throated down the road of stolen election with no accountability. 
She can't accept that other Republicans won. She claims they stole the race from her. Republicans won a majority of the congressional delegation, so they were able to steal the governor's race, but not the congressional races. They, She doesn't think they stole the Senate race. Even Blake Masters isn't out there saying this. They just stole her race, so they bypassed all the other races and stole the governor's race. No. Carrie Lake told Republican voters not to vote for her if they liked John McCain. Carrie Lake turned off people who would have voted for her. And she doesn't want to be held accountable. And she knows there's a significant portion of the Republican base that will never hold her accountable for days before the election, telling Republican voters who were McCain voters, if they were McCain supporters, goodbye, don't vote for me. It's absurd. There's no evidence of theft. In fact, Republicans won a majority of the congressional delegation. They held on to the state legislature against the Democratic governor. You would think if the Democrats were were smart enough to be able to steal an entire statewide race, they would have been able to steal county-level races and state legislative-level races, and they couldn't pull that off. Just that one, just that one, that one candidate who believes the previous election was stolen believes this election was stolen. Never mind, it's a damn lie. And she damned the GOP in Arizona. And now the Democratic governor is working to undermine school choice. And Carrie Lake owns that and can't accept responsibility. When we head into 2024... Democrats will be defending 23 Senate seats. Republicans will be defending just 11. Let me give you the list here. Republicans will be defending North Dakota, Wyoming, Utah, Nebraska, Texas, Missouri, Mississippi, Tennessee, Indiana, and Florida. Democrats will be defending Washington, Montana, Nevada, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New York, really Vermont, even though Bernie Sanders is technically a Democrat, and Maine, even though Angus King is technically an independent. You've got Democrats defending 23 seats, Republicans defending 11 seats, plus a special election in Nebraska for uh, Pete Ricketts' seat. He'll win re-election. Republicans have opportunities, serious opportunities, in Arizona, Nevada, Montana, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. Republicans could get to 57 seats in the U.S. Senate. Easy. But candidates matter. Donald Trump picked terrible candidates. Now, I realize there are some people who want to email the program and say, Donald Trump picked two bajillion candidates and only 15 of them lost, so he's got a 20 quadrillion percentage win margin. Donald Trump endorsed Republicans in races where there was no other candidate. Donald Trump endorsed Republicans in races where the district was drawn so heavily to be a Republican district that even a dead cat would have won against the Democrat.
But Donald Trump also endorsed in places like Pennsylvania that lean Democrat. And his candidate won the primary with one-tenth of one percent of the vote and then lost because that candidate was a New Jersey resident pushed by Sean Hannity and Melania Trump named Dr. Oz who couldn't even pronounce the basic institutions of Pennsylvania in a way Pennsylvanians would recognize. Donald Trump pushed Herschel Walker to get in in Georgia. And now Georgia doesn't have a seat up in 2024. They've both been lost to the Democrats. John Ossoff, because Donald Trump said the 2020 election was stolen and his voters didn't show up in 2021 and uh, pushed Herschel Walker into the race in 2022 against Raphael Warnock. An independent white suburban voter said, we're not going for the guy who can barely put a sentence together. I mean, led Pennsylvania have Fetterman. We're not going for Herschel Walker and all of his baggage. You may not like it, but if you can't understand why independent suburban voters didn't want to vote for Herschel Walker, uh, you're not a smart person. I don't mean to insult your intelligence. But I'll tell you, I had a private breakfast with Herschel Walker, and I was fine sporting him. He'd be better than Warnock. But I got out of that breakfast and thought, holy cow, this guy's damaged goods. He'd still be better than Warnock, but I completely understand why a lot of voters are like, there is no way I'm voting for this guy. Donald Trump backed Blake Masters in Arizona. He did worse than Kerry Lake. Adam Laxalt was a great candidate in Nevada. Donald Trump backed him, but nonetheless, he was a good candidate in Nevada. Nevada... They're going to have a hard time in 2024 because it's a presidential year as well. But there's still a shot if we get the right candidate. And Adam clearly wasn't it, but he was a good candidate. So we got to do better in, in Nevada. We, we can win in Wisconsin. Ron Johnson won. Surely we can win. We can win in Ohio. I mean, every Republican in Ohio won. Sherrod Brown coming up this time. We, he, he's beatable. West Virginia beating Joe Manchin is a no-brainer at this point. Pennsylvania, David McClintock uh, ran last time. He lost to Mehmet Oz by a tenth of a percent. If he's the nominee, he's got money, he can win. Casey, Bob Casey, is not a favored son of Pennsylvania anymore. We should be able to win that one. Virginia will be very tough. And then there's Montana. I don't think Matt Rosendale, who is too iconoclastic, can beat John Tester. He's not a good fit for Montana. I don't think, for this in a race. He's already lost to Tester once. But we can beat Tester with the right candidate. And I got to tell you, for once in my life, I'm hoping the Republican National Republican Senatorial Committee gets involved in primaries and beats back some of these terrible candidates. We cannot afford to repeat what we did in 2022 with these terrible crap candidates in these states that we should have been able to win, and we couldn't because a bunch of voters decided to trust Donald Trump, and Donald Trump led these voters off a cliff. We need better candidates. Candidates matter. Had any of the other Republicans won in Georgia, they would have they would have been able to take that seat from um, Raphael Warnock. Had Latham Sadler 
been the nominee in Georgia. He was a, for those of you unfamiliar with him, he was a Navy SEAL, backpacked through Afghanistan, building relationships, learned the language. One hell of an impressive story. He'd have beaten Raphael Warnock. I mean, Herschel Walker barely lost. Sadler would have won. Your candidate selection has to matter, Republicans. Missouri Republicans dodged a bullet with, uh, what's his name, wife beater creepy dude. Wife beater creepy dude was Greitens or Greitens lost. Uh, Missouri would have gone Democrat, thankfully. I mean, you, you know, there was Eric Schmidt and Eric Greitens, and Trump did the too clever by half. I'm endorsing Eric. Oh, which one am I endorsing? I'm not going to tell you, idiot. He could have locked up that race and a whole lot of Republican resources and money if he had endorsed Schmidt early on, but he chose not to. He wanted to play it cute because he really wanted Greitens and knew what blowback he'd get. Friends, if Republicans will not be stupid in 2024, and that's a, that's a big if I know given this last time and given the doubling down on stupid by the people in Arizona that, oh my gosh, Gary Lake had it stolen from her when none of the other Republicans had it stolen from them. It's clear it was stolen from her. If you're going to be stupid, I'd just be stupid, but leave the rest of us alone. There are 23 Democratic seats up for grabs. Republicans could win eight of them. There are three toss-ups. 50 of them favor Republicans. Right now, 50 Republicans, it looks like they could have a a 50-seat, three-toss-up, Democrats and independents. But of those, Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, they're all up for grabs. They slightly lean Democrat. Slightly lean Democrat. Montana and Arizona are toss-ups. The GOP can take the Senate and stop Joe Biden and stop his judicial picks if Republicans give up the habit of listening to Donald Trump and the grifters picking stupid candidates who cannot win. If we can do that, we can take the Senate and also take the White House, maybe hold the House in 2024. If you own a small to medium-sized business that kept employees on payroll through COVID, you may have a big cash refund waiting for you. The Employee Retention Credit is a tax credit of up to $26,000 per employee, and now more businesses than ever qualify. The experts at RefundsPro.com specialize in cutting through the red tape of qualifying for this government program. Most of their refunds are over $100,000. Even businesses that have received PPP funds may be eligible, and there are absolutely no fees unless you receive a refund. There's no reason not to apply. If your business experienced shutdowns, limited capacity, supply chain challenges, or even reduced revenue due to COVID, you likely qualify. RefundsPro.com has already helped hundreds of businesses, so don't lose the refund you're owed by missing the deadline. Get started today with a free five-minute questionnaire at Refunds with an S, RefundsPro.com. That's Refunds with an S, Pro.com. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson, the phone number 877-973-7425. To the phones we go, Heidi, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the show. Hi there, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. I just, I know we're, I'm a segment behind, I guess, but That's I just right. wanted to, just, I taught um, 
high school up in North Georgia, one of the major metro areas, for many years. And when you were saying, you know, we have to have school choice, I 100% agree. But it can't just be for the failing schools because some of these high schools now in these, these systems, they're supposed to be the premier system, but they, they won't even allow you or a student to earn a failing grade. So mm-hmm. all of these grades are inflated. And therefore, you know, I'm watching my own kid. I homeschool now because I pull them out. But it's killing us financially. But the teenager, he's too far gone. He didn't want to come out. And um, there's just no reward for work ethic. Mm-hmm. Everything is just put in a video. Let them do it on their phones. It's, mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking. It's devastating as an educator, as a parent. Um, I want more, not just for him, but for all of them. And this is supposedly one of the premier high schools in the Look, state. You know, you, you raise a big issue, particularly in Georgia, where the governor in Georgia has decided to, to re- refund up the fund of the HOPE scholarship. So it would um, increase funding for kids to be able to go to schools based on grade point average. You and I both know grade inflation is going to become a problem as more and more kids are eligible yep. If, if they get to a B average, that that's a problem. And you're right. A lot of these top schools, you know, I'll just give you an example here. And Heidi, I appreciate you calling in and talking about this. Um, my kids go to a very small classical education school, Christian school. We had to be interviewed about our faith. They don't let all comers come in. The, the philosophy is that even missionaries have to go to training to become a missionary. We shouldn't be throwing our kids in as a missional program when, when they're still trying to sort out who they are. It's unfair to the kids, and I agree with that philosophy. And our kids are there, and it's classical education. And my daughter forever thought that she was behind. She wasn't getting the education she needed for a school like Georgia Tech. That's where she wants to go. She went to a summer program at Georgia Tech. And she wound up dominating everybody because she learned real math, not common core math. She knew how to get the math. But more importantly, she had the people skills the other kids did not have. So they made her be the one to be the spokesman for groups and to be the explainer for things and the person who introduced the guest speakers. And she did all that because she had those skills that she learned at a classical education school as opposed to the phoning it in brand that so many of the other kids has. She was in a program with kids from top schools from Chicago and uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and she was running circles around all of them. And the people skills, the ability to make a presentation in public, and even in the basic math skills that she was convinced she'd be behind on. And so what she got is just a very small school with very few frills and benefits. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425. If you'd like to be on the program, as always, text Eric to 33777 to get the podcast, the show notes, the the social media links, all of that. Uh, Find me on Instagram. Let's go to the phones. Keith, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the program, Keith. You there? Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, how are you doing today? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing good. So, my question was, just with everything that we know about, like, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and everything that they've been involved in together, whether or not how much they say that they haven't been, and 
how it's really all coming to light. What do we do as far as no one really wants Kamala Harris as a president because we all know that would be a disaster. So what's like the next move? Do we kind of just have to wait these next two years and hope he doesn't mess stuff up even more than he already has (laughs) so we can have a chance of getting somebody that's actually decent and cares about America unlike him? Yeah, look, um, you know, the fight I think is already on here. I'm here, you know, after the election was over, uh, the, Biden kind of defied history, first president, second president since World War II to not have his party get blown out. George W. Bush was the first. He was the second after World War II to not have his party blown out of the water. First president since 1932 to not lose seats in the Senate. Um or 20, I can't remember, but early part of the 20th century. And everybody's like, oh, he gets to run again. He gets to run again. Jill Biden wants her husband to run again. I don't think he does. There's starting to be more and more rumbling about Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and Gavin Newsom. There are things Biden should be doing right now that he's not doing in terms of fundraising and announcing he's going to run again. He should be doing it right now to quell the rumors. He's not doing that. And I think Kamala Harris's problems, you know, she was down in Florida yesterday and she took shots at Ron DeSantis, like presidential level shots. Like she clearly thinks that Ron DeSantis is the nominee moving forward. The Democrats don't treat Kamala Harris seriously. Even Democrats yesterday were laughing about her giving a speech uh, uh, on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade and deliberately deleting uh, the life as one of the the three things in the Declaration of Independence that even they thought that was a really dumb thing for her to do. Uh, She's just not a great candidate moving forward. She's weak. She couldn't make it past. She couldn't even make it to Iowa in 2020. Buttigieg wants it. He is mercilessly climbing the ladder. I Newsom wants it. I think that Biden's got to find a way to, to either steer this forward and make it clear he really is running and lock it all up or they got problems. I don't think anything's going to happen until after the Democratic National Committee gives the landscape for 2020. Remember, the Democrats are trying to shake up their map and get out of Iowa and New Hampshire as the first two races. They tried to do Georgia. The Georgia Republicans are like, nope, you're not coming here first. Uh, They want to do South Carolina. That's what Biden wants. They're fighting about that. South Carolina and Nevada concurrently, something like that. Uh, They got to figure that out. And once they do, I think we'll get a real hint from Biden what he's going to do. But I just don't think Kamala is is a starter for 2024. And now, Deep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. She's just a non-starter for 2024. Even Democrats privately concede that. 
Up next, Mike. You're going to be on the phones. Welcome, Mike. How are you? I'm doing fine, Eric. I appreciate your show, um, and I really do appreciate you staying on this topic of school choice. My wife and I are empty nesters. Our daughter went through public schools up in Cobb, um, but thank goodness she was an extremely bright student. Our biggest issue was just she was getting bored. But, you know, she we kept her challenged um, so she could excel. But anyway, for the sake of our nation and for the sake of these generations in school or headed to school, how do politicians, how do we break the grip of teacher unions? It seems like they are the biggest hurdle when it comes to discussions about school choice, vouchers and all that stuff in any state to include Georgia. But how do we break their grip? It just seems like it's a vice grip. Well, okay, so, so let's separate out to, to some degree here. I think it is important in states like Georgia, they don't, Georgia, uh, Florida, several other states, uh, particularly right-to-work states, they don't have the powerful teachers' unions that a California or an Illinois or Massachusetts has, in large part because they don't have the right to strike, per se. Uh, they don't have collective bargaining rights, things like that. Uh, in those Democratic states, honestly, I think what has to happen is the Republican states, the right-to-work states, have to fully embrace school choice, allow public school kids to go to private school, force the public schools to compete, and ultimately what you see is the educated workforce numbers improve. Like, for example, Florida embraced school choice over time, and the educated uh, workforce data in Florida shows Florida students tend to be more proficient in math and reading than kids in other states. And that comes after school choice. So if these other states embrace school choice, they begin to outperform the states like California, Illinois, Massachusetts that have these locked in teachers unions that won't allow school choice. And suddenly the pressure is brought to bear on those states that they've got to give up on it. I mean, you got a state like Illinois wants to even kill charter schools now because the the public school unions have become so dominant. Um, you bring competition into Republican states through school choice. You see education improve. It's harder and harder for Democrats to avoid this. And it also hurts teacher union clout as parents begin to stage uprisings in those states as well. Um, uh, next, we're, let's go to Lakin. Am I pronouncing your name right? Yes, sir. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I just had a quick question about uh, the ATF has come out with a rule here recently, than, I think about a week or two ago, about that Ten. this applies to about 10 to 40 million Americans, about that if you own an a uh, an AR pistol or any type of, you know, what the ATF would consider to be an SBR, but bought the firearm with a pistol brace and it's considered a pistol. If you bought that, let's say a month ago, now it's considered a short barreled rifle, and overnight that has changed to it's not in, it's not effect as a law, but it's a ruling of the ATF right. and saying that you are now a felon according to the new ATF ruling. What's yeah. your... Uh... Oh, good question. So uh, this comes after... Uh, so, the you know, the, the Trump administration issued the um, bump stock rule on, on that 
and the the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals invalidated that ATF rule treating bump stocks as machine guns. Um, I don't think this ATF rule is going to be upheld. First of all, it's bad uh, on stabilizing braces. Essentially, the, the text uh, isn't technically final, but it's not going to change. The rules differs uh, from a rule proposed a year and a half ago by the Biden administration. I'm reading now from the NRA's uh, Legislative uh, Institute for Legislative Action. While the proposal suffered from problems, the final rule abandons any attempt at ab- objectivity and continues the ATF's practice of applying. We'll know it when we'll see its standard. That's not a good enough legal standard. Um, so here's the situation. The ATF has decided that a number of guns that have stabilizing braces are now reclassified. Even though you already own this, suddenly your gun is now considered uh, an illegal purchase. I don't think it's going to be upheld in court. The reason I don't think it's upheld, it will be upheld in court, is when you look at the rulings about ATF uh, regulations, when a class of gun has been legal for people to own and the ATF begins to draft rules that nuance things pre-existing legal guns have that are already in in, uh, the private circulation, courts tend to say, nope, you can't do that. Um, I think they're going to get struck down in court. I also think we should be mindful of the fact that this is this is a front where I think a lot of the next gunfights are going to be fought on, where they redefine existing things and say existing guns are bad. Um, I lost my gun in a boating accident a while back that would have run afoul to this rule, and and I simply don't have it anymore. It's it's. Davy Jones locker now. So I'm I'm not worried about it. But for those of you who do, I personally think that there's going to be a court fight on this one and the ATF is going to lose again. Uh, the federal courts right now are really hesitant to declare you a criminal because you owned a perfectly legal gun that the ATF now doesn't think is legal. I think it was stupid of them to do this. Um, But what they're trying to do, and you need to understand this, is the Biden administration is trying to provoke a fight with both the courts and the Congress because they really do believe a majority of Americans support gun control. And if they do this rule and they portray it with the press's help as a reasonable rule and it gets thrown out, well, then they get to blame the courts, the Trump-appointed judges, and further undermine uh, the judiciary. That's really what's going on. Um, A buddy of mine just texted, by the way, and said, this rule is going to go away the moment a lawsuit is filed by a disabled person under the Americans with Disabilities Act. More likely than not, accurate statement. All right, let me see if I can squeeze this story in because this is a a story, and I don't want to change the title of my show for this hour. A retired FBI counterintelligence agent reportedly involved in the Trump-Russia probe was arrested for ties to a Russian oligarch. Charles McGonigal. He was the special agent in charge of the FBI's counterterrorism division in New York. He retired in 2018. McGonigal was one of the first people at the FBI to learn about the allegations that George Papadopoulos had ties to the Russians and 
was working in, in the so-called Operation Crossfire Hurricane. Fox News is told a senior counterintelligence official at the time, McGonagall likely was briefed on Crossfire Hurricane. And that guy was apparently involved in the investigation trying to show there were ties between Trump and the Russians, and it's not so. Now he himself has ties to the Russians. He's charged with violating U.S. sanctions by agreeing to provide services to Oleg Deripaska, a sanctioned Russian oligarch. He was charged alongside Sergei Shestikov, a former Soviet and Russian diplomat who became a U.S. citizen and a Russian interpreter for courts and government offices through a five-count indictment unsealed in Manhattan. The indictment is a rare move by federal prosecutors to bring charges against former senior FBI official before a federal grand jury. They are alleged to have worked for this Russian oligarch and provided him with information about others. Both men are charged with one count of conspiring to violate and evade U.S. sanctions in violation of the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. One count of violating the act, one count of conspiring to commit money laundering, one count of money laundering, each with a maximum sentence of 20 years. Shestikov, the Russian, is also charged with a count of making false statements. This is kind of intriguing that one of their own is being charged like this. I wonder if more have done this. They supposedly worked for this guy trying to get sanctions removed against him. Now, one of the interesting things about this Russian oligarch they worked for is he was known for throwing lavish, lavish parties at Davos. And there have been allegations for years he was collecting intelligence on people and setting people up, getting them drunk, intoxicated, and putting them with, with in compromising positions that he could use for his influence. It's just kind of fascinating that he had a former FBI agent on his payroll trying to help him in the United States, and that guy's going to be in all sorts of trouble. It's also kind of interesting that he happens to be the guy who probably worked on the Trump-Russia stuff, and he himself did it. I'm telling you, Merrick Garland came out this morning and said that there really is no double standard. We don't treat one class of citizens differently in, uh, for justice than others. I don't believe him on that. I think it's true that rich people can get away with a lot. If he wanted to disabuse of his stuff more like this, more going after rich Democratic donors, that, my friends, would work tremendously well to assuage Americans that there isn't a double standard. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. A uh, real quick programming note. I will be out tomorrow, but back Thursday. I, uh, long before COVID, had agreed to give a, a speech to a lawyer's group, and then it got rescheduled, and then had more COVID outbreak and rescheduled again, and it is tomorrow. And um, so I'll be actually be not even be talking about politics, but it's, it's in, we've Thought it warranted at the time at the, at my flagship station to do just given the people in the room and where it is. So I'll be gone to that tomorrow, but then I'll be back on Thursday and um, Friday as well. Now I gotta I I, I gotta just laugh at this story. Y'all know what the blue dogs are? There's an old phrase I forget where it comes from in the South during Reconstruction uh, that uh, Democrats, a, a voters would rather vote for a yellow dog than a Republican. 
And the phrase became tied to yellow dog Democrat, meaning you would vote for a yellow dog running as a Democrat over any Republican is the, the, the hardcore of the hardest core of Democrats. Well, for time, there's a phrase blue dog that developed that if you were a blue dog, you, you were more moderate. You were not the hardcore rabid Democrat. You were a, a Democrat who fit into the changing new South. And there's a blue dog coalition in the house of representatives and that Blue Dog Coalition is is made up of moderate Democrats, not all from the South, but a lot of them from the South, from swing districts. And some of them wanted to rebrand themselves. They were tired of using the Blue Dog label. They don't want to be thought of as dogs. Well, they couldn't agree on it. Some of them liked the history of being labeled Blue Dogs. The others, they wanted to be known as the Common Sense Caucus, the Common Sense Coalition. And they were tired of the phrase Blue Dogs because it was it was derived from Southern Boys Club. Um, they couldn't agree, so they broken up the Blue Dog Caucus in Congress over a name, over not on principles, but over a name. Uh it seems like it's been a pretty diverse group of people over the last four years. I'm not thinking of 30 years ago. I don't really entertain that type of critique, said one blue dog Democrat who opposed the name change. This centrist added that a majority of the remaining members weren't trying to change the blue dog caucus by increasing its muscle with more members. We're not trying to recruit and become like the center of gravity. Internal reformers pushed the name Common Sense Coalition. That included Abigail Spanberger and others, the last women in the group wanted a name change just because they want a more clout and they don't want to be tied to the Democratic brand, which should tell you when moderate Democrats don't want to be tied to the Democratic brand in the House, maybe the Democratic brand has problems too and the media just doesn't want to cover that side of it. Go figure.